MD Notify, a pediatrics podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Christine Supchuk, and today we're going to be talking about hearing screening. Hearing screening is, of course, an important topic within pediatrics. If you are thinking about going into general pediatrics, this is something that you'll be doing all the time, thinking about and looking at the results of these tests. And also, if you are in the hospital, um, as you know, this is something that we do for all of our newborns before discharge. So without further ado, let's go ahead and talk a little bit about the timeline for hearing screening. As I mentioned, before discharge from the newborn nursery or from the NICU, all babies that are born within the United States are going to get a universal hearing screen. And what that's really looking for is infants who have congenital hearing loss. And our goal with that screen is to get those infants into care before they turn six months of age. We know that things like language and social development are very, very contingent upon your ability to interact with the environment around you. And of course, hearing is a huge part of that. So how does this work? How does the hearing screen process actually work? So in the NICU and in the newborn nursery, when we're thinking about screening infants and universal hearing screens for neonates, um, there's really two tests that we use. One is the auditory brainstem response, or ABR, and the other one is called otoacoustic emissions testing. So let's start by talking a little bit about the ABR. So ABR, or you'll hear sometimes people will call it AABR, which stands for Automated Auditory Brainstem Response, is a special machine that kind of hooks up to the infant's head. It's got little probes on it, and it has a little, almost like a one-sided earmuff type situation. And they put that over the baby's ear, and they give a stimulus. So it could be a little chirping sound, or um, it could be a variety of things, but they stimulate the infant's brainstem, essentially, and then pick up on the brainstem's neuronal response. It's kind of crazy that we can do that, but this is one of the tests that we use most commonly. This is a really good test, but the caveat to this test is that you have to have an infant who's asleep and you have to be in a quiet environment. You can imagine we're picking up on very, very, very faint signals with this very sensitive equipment. And so if the infant is squirming around or crying or, you know, there's a lot of music or noise in the background, the test just is not going to work. So that's one of the things that you really have to keep in mind when you're waiting on an ABR to be done. So, for example, if you have an audiologist um, that's inpatient who is coming to assess your patient, um, it's not uncommon for them to say, hey, you know, I stopped by. We weren't able to get the test done today, but, you know, we can maybe try again tomorrow or try again in a couple hours when the infant is asleep. And so that's kind of why and how those types of um, difficulties with testing sort of arise. The other form of testing that we often use in the newborn nursery and in the NICU is OAE, or the otoacoustic emissions testing. This test is a little different, um, and basically how it works is it measures the sound the cochlea makes in response to an external sound. So it's sort of the same situation where you're measuring a sound that's coming from the baby or measuring a response that's coming from the baby after you stimulate that infant with a sound stimulus. So you would, for example, play a sound or play a stimulus, 
and then all those little hairs produces its own little sound, that sound would travel back out the ear canal and get picked up by the machine. So you can imagine this is also a test where you're picking up on very, very small signals. And so you'd need to have the same sort of quiet environment. The baby can't be crying. The baby is, in the best case scenario, the baby is asleep or at the very least calm and quiet. And the environment itself has to be a quiet uh, environment so that the machine can actually work. Now, OAE testing is a good test and it's a test that we use all over the United States in newborn nurseries, but it does have a couple more false positives than ABR testing. In particular, if you have an infant who is just born, let's say it's a 24-hour-old neonate, that baby may have some residual either vernix or amniotic fluid or whatever else actually physically inside the ear canal after birth. I mean, you can imagine it comes out and it may just have some residual stuff in the ear canal. And OAE testing is actually more dependent on having a clean and clear ear canal because it's picking up on the sound that's coming from those hair cells and the way they move produces that sound that actually has to go through the ear canal and get picked up by the machine. So it's, it does have a couple more false positives than ABR testing for that reason. So ABR and OAE testing, those are the two main types of testing that we use in universal hearing screening for infants before they go home from the hospital. These are both methods that we can use in infants that are less than six months of age. And really, they're kind of interchangeable in the newborn nursery setting, meaning that you can use either one in a newborn nursery and it would be the right thing to do. That's not necessarily true of the NICU, however, because in the NICU, we know that we have higher-risk infants, and because of that, we want to use ABR testing and not OAE testing in our NICU babies prior to discharge. Just for reference, a normal, healthy neonate that is born, um, uncomplicated delivery, just stays in the newborn nursery, has a hearing screen, and goes home, about one to three out of a thousand of those children are going to be identified as having an issue with their hearing. In contrast, when you take a look at the NICU population, that number becomes a lot larger. So it's anywhere from two to four out of 400 babies will have an issue with their hearing. Um, and that's because those babies may have been more likely to have meningitis or they may have had congenital CMV or whatever else. You know, they've had a little bit of a more of a traumatic and complicated course. And so that's why we use ABR testing exclusively in our NICU patients prior to discharge, whereas in the newborn nursery, you could use either or. Okay, so we talked about how we screen our, our infants, either in the newborn nursery or in the NICU. And now let's talk a little bit about what we do if they refer one or both of their ears on their initial hearing screen. So when an infant does not pass their hearing screen, we refer to that as they referred on that side. So you could have an infant who passed on the right and referred on the left, or you could have an infant who passed bilaterally, or you could have an infant who referred on both sides. That's just kind of the terminology that we use when we're thinking about hearing screens. So let's say we have a baby who referred on one side. Let's say it's the left side. The way you're going to counsel that family is that most babies who refer 
most of those babies go on to have normal hearing. Remember, this is a screening test. So we're looking for a test that is very, very sensitive so we don't leave anybody behind and we get pick up every single child that has hearing impairment. And so for that reason, we're going to end up with a fair amount of kids who are false positives, and that's okay. So what you would do is you would say, you know, most kids who refer on their hearing screen go on to have normal hearing, but it is important because we know that hearing is very crucial to your child's language and social development. And so what we want to do is we want to refer you to an audiologist as an outpatient, and they're going to redo the screen. I will say sometimes if you are in the newborn nursery setting or if you're in the NICU setting, sometimes they'll go ahead and repeat the screen a couple times as an inpatient. And then if you get one that's a pass, then that's totally fine. You can have four fails and one pass. As long as you passed, your hearing is probably okay. But these are kids we're talking about who are actually going home who have referred on one side or who have referred on both sides. So you would send that baby home and they would follow up with their pediatrician and they would go for a repeat hearing screen. That would be an ABR or an OAE. And if they were referred again, then they would go to audiology and have a little bit more of an extensive workup. So the steps are kind of like they get a screen before they go home. If they don't pass that screen, they'd be repeat the screen as an outpatient. If they don't pass that screen, then we refer to audiology. And once we refer to audiology, they will give us some feedback and say, hey, you know, we've done XYZ testing. And in fact, the baby does have um, evidence of sensory neural or conductive hearing loss, whatever the case may be. And at that point, of course, we'd want to work them up um, and refer at least at the very minimum to ENT. Um, But you'd want to look at the infant and look at their medical history, look at their family history, the history of the pregnancy, and see if there's anything else you want to do um, in terms of referrals. So that could be like genetics, for example, um, or whatever the case may be. And keep in mind that our goal when we are taking care of infants who have referred on a hearing screen and who potentially could go on to really be diagnosed with true congenital hearing loss is to get those infants into care early, what we call early intervention. So that means we want them to see a speech-language pathologist, we want them to go to ENT and get a more thorough exam, we want them to potentially get fitted for any kind of assistive devices they may need, be that, let's say, a cochlear implant or whatever ENT recommends. We want to get that ball rolling as pediatricians as quickly as possible. And so our, the number that we have in our mind as, as far as a deadline per se would be six months. We really want to get these kids in, seen, and in the right place by six months of age. And so it's kind of sad because I think that a lot of parents, wh- whether this be an educational um, gap or not, maybe don't follow up as quickly. It could also be that if you are in a more rural part of your state, it's a little bit of a drive to get to some of these centers. Um, but really our goal as pediatricians is to get kids who have potential hearing loss in to see a specialist and in the right place in early intervention programs at or before six months of age. 
Okay, so we've talked a little bit about how we handle hearing screening in the neonatal and newborn period, um, but now we'll kind of talk a little bit more about how we do hearing screening when you're six months of age and older. So I mentioned that the ABR and the OAE testing, those are tests that we predominantly use on neonates and kids who are six months of age and younger. That's mostly because those babies have to be asleep. And once you're six months of age, you're really not spending as much time asleep and it's a lot harder to get a six month old who can sit up and look around and grab at things in an office to calm down and take a nap for an ABR test. So once an infant is um, six months of age, if for whatever reason, let's say you um, have a patient you've never seen them before and their parent says, yeah, I don't really remember if they got a newborn screen um, hearing test. Let's say they're from a different state or something, but I'm really concerned that my baby can't hear me. You know, I drop something on the floor. It makes a, a really loud noise and they don't startle, things like that. And you're, you think to yourself, okay, well, we should get hearing testing for that child. If that child is between six months and two years of age, what they're probably going to do is what we call visual reinforcement audiometry. And that is where they sit, set the baby up and they play sounds. And the sounds come from one side of the room or the other. And they look to see if the baby's eyes move toward where the sound is coming from. This is not a perfect test because, as you can imagine, um, these are children that are not of the age where they can just tell you, yeah, I hear the sound, it comes from this side, or yeah, I hear the sound, it comes from that side. So you kind of have to do a little bit of detective work. This is a test that you're definitely going to get done by an audiologist, a trained professional. It's not going to happen in the pediatrician office. Um, but just so that you know what is out there for that age group, that would be something that you would be thinking about. Now, if you're two years of age and older, you're typically old enough to do what we call pure tone audiometry. Pure tone audiometry is where they give you that set of headphones. We all probably remember this from when we had our own pediatrician experiences growing up. I know I do. But they give you the set of headphones and they say, raise your hand on the side that the sound is playing on. And then in that way, they kind of assess your hearing. When you do pure tone audiometry, they're playing the sound at a set decibel, so it's at a set sort of loudness, um, but the tone is changing. And so it'll range anywhere from 500 hertz to about 3,000 or 4,000 hertz, and they'll play the sounds kind of um, on different sides and have different frequencies. And then in that way, they will assess your hearing. So it's not necessarily how loud it is, um, but it's the frequency that's changing. Now, the AAP does recommend universal hearing screening at age 4, 5, 6, 8, and 10 years of age. And you should also always think about doing it again if you have anybody who is a high-risk patient. So high-risk kids are kids who've had bacterial or viral meningitis, kids who have craniofacial abnormalities, kids who have a history of chemotherapy administration, lots of chemotherapies are toxic to those inner ear cells, kids who've had head trauma, and kids who have other medical diagnoses, for example, genetic syndromes and things like that, that are known to be associated with 
hearing loss. So in that higher risk group of kids, you would always think about screening them again. Let's say you're screening them again at the three-year visit just because they have that additional risk factor. Um, But as far as universal screening goes, you're going to want to universally screen all kids ages 4, 5, 6, 8, and 10 years of age. All right, and that's our episode on hearing screening. I hope this was helpful. As always, this is MD Notified. I am Christine Sufchuk, and we will see you next week. Thanks for listening to MD Notified, a pediatric podcast. References to the information sourced in this episode can be found in the Quick Notes outline, which is available on mdnotified.com. The contributors to MD Notified have no financial disclosures or conflicts of interest. The views, information, or opinions expressed are solely those of the individuals in today's episode and do not represent any other organizations or its employees. The primary purpose of this podcast is to inform and educate. This podcast does not constitute medical or professional advice or services. If you are a member of the general public and have questions, please make an appointment with your local board-certified pediatrician.